Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Oliver Berkman, the author of the new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Oliver is a great writer, and this book is no exception. In the conversation, Oliver and I discuss what's different about 4,000 Weeks to other books on the subject, the productivity trap, why it's difficult for meaningful tasks to get on our to-do lists, the importance of patience, accepting our mortality, living in uncertainty, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Oliver Berkman. Before we bring on our guests, just a quick announcement to share. The Perennial Leader Project recently launched a new podcast called The Philosopher, Monk, and Mystic. This podcast delivers short reflections inspired by ancient philosophy and spiritual traditions. Episodes are released two to three times per week and provide a great way to start your day with a bit of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Now, on to the show. To begin, Oliver, I wanted to highlight um, what Adam Grant wrote about your book, the most important book ever written about time management. Those are some strong words. So what's, the, <laughs> what's different about 4,000 weeks and other books on time management? Well, yeah, it was a wonderfully generous quote. Uh, and I suppose if you I suppose the other way of interpreting it would be that uh, all the other books on time management are terrible or something. But uh, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the compliment for sure. It was very generous of Adam. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to do in this book is connect up this topic of time management that I think strikes most people these days as being a fairly sort of shallow or superficial thing to do with exactly how to timetable your day or make efficiency savings so it's quicker to cook dinner in the evenings or something connect this up to you know the real situation we're in which is that we have a finite amount of time on the earth the title of the book 4000 weeks refers to the approximate length of a human lifespan and that uh, you know in that sense life is a challenge of time management and it is a deep and important and existential issue and it doesn't seem like we should be we should settle for um you know just a few little techniques about becoming more efficient so i really wanted to sort of uh, address this uh in a in a more fundamental way and, and connect up those questions we make about those those dilemmas we face about how to use an individual hour of the day or something to the to the big question that they are all ultimately about <clears throat> Well, I think you did a great job with it. I've really enjoyed the book. And before we get into some of the specifics, I wanted to talk a little bit about this is in search of wisdom, but a, a bit of your search. I, what, one of the things I love about your writing is you're not only searching for modern research, you're also looking at ancient wisdom from the East and the West or wherever you can find these nuggets of wisdom, if you will. And what initially started this style of, of writing? It's funny. It's fascinating to hear you say that because, yeah, I definitely feel like the other thing is that I I hope I'm honest in the book that I'm not like someone who has uh, gone in search of wisdom and found it all and is now smugly content that he has a perfect life. You know, I think I'm as much searching as any of my readers. Um, I mean, one reviewer I, about this book said that, you know, made note of the fact that it quotes uh, Heidegger and also Rod Stewart and Seneca, but also Danielle Steele. And it was funny to me in a way, because I just never, 
I never thought of doing otherwise in a way. It's not like I deliberately set out to try to bring um, <clears throat> classical philosophy in, in touch with modern culture. I just sort of um, vacuum up ideas and, and interesting observations wherever I find them. I think I've always had that sort of that sort of attitude. And this involves two things. I mean, on the one hand, it involves um, not being intimidated by great thinkers who write big, intimidating books like uh, you know, Heidegger's Being in Time. And on the other hand, it involves the openness to thinking that somebody who you wouldn't necessarily think of as a as a great thinker maybe has something really important to say on those issues. And so I just, I love finding those connections and, and finding that, uh, you know, what, what uh, Seneca said about something is sort of reflected in the way that, uh, you know, Rod Stewart decides to live his life or something like that. <laughs> I, I love that visual of vacuuming up ideas. It, it seems like you did the same in The Antidote, which I, I loved as well. There was so many different um, areas kind of touched on, on there. Has that always e- existed? It seems like an insatiable curiosity. It might be easier to just focus on modern <clears throat> research and, and put it together. What I think thoughts? what you're putting your finger on there just speaking personally for my own journey, as it were, is that in some very fundamental way, I do think I'm a journalist. Uh, Mm. And I have always wanted to be a journalist since I was very young. And I spent a good chunk of my early years of my career doing very straightforwardly, you know, news journalism, features journalism. Uh, And I've always been a little annoyed by a tendency among some writers of books to be quite disdainful of journalists. Now, we live in a different time now when the newspaper industry is collapsing and journalism means all sorts of things and there's lots of controversy. But but the basic idea that you just sort of go out there with your notebook and and ask around and see what's going on and, and pass it along instead of, uh, you know, in a way that to some people might seem a little bit superficial, right? Because it's, you're sort of going everywhere and spreading, spreading the, the net, casting the net wide. Uh, I think that just comes from... from from sort of enjoying journalism. And I think the other thing about journalists is that, or good journalism anyway, is that you're sort of a hopefully intelligent and hopefully articulate proxy for the reader. You're just another guy going and looking into something. Hopefully you can do it in a, in a, in a sort of eloquent fashion. But it's not like being the sort of, you know, a professor of a specific uh, niche area who then... Uh, deigns to come down to the level of the ordinary people and make it accessible it's like no just trying to just trying to find out what's out there i love it one of the things you talk about in the book is this productivity trap becoming more efficient just makes you more rushed could you say more sure i mean i think we feel this immense pressure don't we in the modern world to find ways to do more with the same amount of time same amount of energy And it's not that that's never worth doing. You know, if it takes you an hour and a half to brush your teeth and get dressed in the morning, there's probably an efficiency saving you could you could make in that process. And I'm not sort of against that in principle. But there is this phenomenon whereby if you make us if you take a system and you make it more efficient, could be yourself, could be a company applies in lots of different areas of life. Uh, but you don't do anything else. You don't have a, a guiding value about which things are worth doing and which things are not worth doing. Then left to its own devices, that system will just get fuller and fuller and fuller of um, more stuff to do. The, the, you know, if you, if you get really good at processing your email, I can speak from personal experience, you just get a lot more email because you're replying and people are replying to your replies and you're getting a reputation as being responsive on email. So more people email you. If you get really good at doing your work in your organization, well, you're going to get given more work, of course, because people want it done fast. So they give it to the person who can do it fast. It's actually the, an equivalent case here, which I think is really sometimes makes it vivid to people is um, when they when they try to ease congestion on freeways by adding a new lane to the freeway. Very often what happens is that the extra space incentivizes more drivers to use that route. And so it fills up with cars again 
and congestion is just as bad as it was before. So it's the same idea, right? If all you're doing to a system is enabling more inputs to flow in more freely, well, guess what? They're going to flow in more freely. And also, as I discussed in the book, I don't need to talk about it in detail, but what will happen inevitably if you don't do something about it is that you'll not only find yourself with more to do, but you'll end up with more to do of a trivial variety of stuff that doesn't align well with your your interests and your goals. It does seem that we're really good at adding things. I think personally, but I also think from an organizational perspective, organizations can add, but not necessarily think of what are we removing? How do we get better or, or think in terms of if we're adding, you know, this particular uh concept or task what are we removing i think it's a really good point and i think you know just to get sort of a bit sort of psychoanalytic about it or something the reason the ultimate reason that that we have this sort of bias towards adding instead of subtracting is that we want to feel in control of our lives we want to feel in control of time we want to feel like the master of our time which is all because ultimately we kind of don't want to die. And, and, and as long as you're sort of adding things to a system, as long as you're doing more, introducing more uh, techniques to your workflow or just adding projects, that really fuels this notion that you're, you're en route to this um, time of total control and serenity. You don't get there because it's kind of not possible, but you feel like it's, it's coming. If you decide to not do something which is actually a much more realistic engagement with the situation we're in, right? As finite humans facing infinite possibilities, consciously deciding not to do things is like, that's the whole time management game. Uh, Because you are going to be not doing most things. So the trick is to do it consciously instead of have other people or sort of blind chance make those decisions for you. But it's instead of being sort of comforting, the comforting feeling that you're en route to this kind of omnipotent godlike control over things it's anxiety inducing because it involves sort of feeling your limitations and saying well you know i'm going to decide not to launch that project or to just leave that important uh goal that i have for my life and not take any action on it for now precisely so that i can take action on on another one and make progress but but it's that confrontation with reality and the ways in which reality makes us feel sort of constrained and claustrophobic, it, it's, it induces anxiety. And so naturally, people would rather, you know, by default, just sort of slide into the activities that make them feel less anxious instead. Why do you think some of the meaningful tasks in life have a hard time getting on that to-do list? I wonder, I, I think sometimes around some of those tasks that maybe don't have an end or don't get checked of, of being a better parent or spouse mm-hmm. or, or time for yourself. I mean, it's, it, it's the $64 million question or whatever the phrase mm-hmm. is. It, I mean, absolutely. This is, this is it. And I think, you know, the general, we can talk in details, but the general overarching answer I want to give is the same one we choose activities that make us feel like we're secure and in control and we know what's happening and we're capable of everything and we don't have to take tough choices so activities that bring us up against our limitations because we might not be good enough or because we want to know that it'll turn out okay and we can't know um, or because we want to sort of be there at the moment of fruition and completion which you know uh, is not how parenting works. Parenting is but the ultimate example of something that, you know, you'll hopefully be long gone before this, anyone can sort of say, did this person have a successful life? Because <laughs> one hopes that their life uh, goes on for many, many years beyond <coughs> your own. Um, so, you know, th- these are just sort of difficult and uncomfortable, uncomfortable things. And I don't think it's a coincidence, right, that, that the things that we care about are the things that make us feel uh, uncomfortable because they are the kind of things that matter that push us to our to our edge, um, and that's where you get all the benefit, right? So, a, a long term relationship is the obvious one of the obvious examples. 
you can't know when you make that commitment that you're signing up for more fulfillment and pleasure than pain. You can, in fact, be pretty sure that you're signing up for at least some pain and you can't guarantee that it won't be terrible and awful at that point. But you sort of have to make the commitment in order to experience that situation. You have to sort of jump with no safety net. And if you don't, if your goal in life is uh, always to exert control over your relationships, then you will at the best, at best be a sort of uh, serial commitment phobe, which <laughs> I certainly was for a long period of my life. Or, you know, at the worst, you'll be some sort of horribly abusive person who doesn't want to let the other human being be who they are. And neither of those is a route to fulfillment because because you were tr focused too much on trying to make sure like you felt secure about how things were going to unfold in a couple examples in the book it it seems like patience is is definitely a requisite skill when it comes to time management the example of of looking at the painting for three hours i'd, I'd <laughs> love to hear a little bit about that how that experience was and <clears throat> And it uh, it sounds challenging. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's meant to be, right? This this comes from a, an art historian at um, <clears throat> at Harvard called Jennifer Roberts, who uh, asks all her incoming students to go and look, choose a painting or a sculpture in the Boston area, uh, and go and stare at it for three hours straight. And her argument really is that. Um, you know, you haven't really seen a painting just because you glance at it. But we live and her students live in this world where everything points towards acceleration and getting more done quicker and sort of hurrying through life. So she felt that her duty as a teacher was actually to sort of oblige them to slow down. And of course, they find it uncomfortable. And of course, three hours is a sort of minor form of torture three hours might be for anybody but it's especially for anyone whose mind is totally conditioned to this sort of modern day level of acceleration and i think the bigger point here that goes beyond uh, art appreciation is just that so much of what's worth doing and knowing and understanding in life kind of has its own tempo and if you think that you're going to dictate how fast it goes it's just a recipe for a kind of uh, constant anxious tension um, because it's not going as fast as you'd, as you'd like. Um, I think reading is the example I give in the book that I think is just so, so um, ubiquitous these days. People say they don't have any time to read or they never get around to reading. Usually I don't think they mean they can't find half an hour in the 24-hour period where they could sit down with a book. They mean, or at least I certainly mean, that when you get that time and you sit down, you're so conditioned to hurry and your mind is moving so fast that really letting that book take the time it takes, reading, you know, notwithstanding various suspect approaches to speed reading and stuff, reading basically you can't hurry very much. You can get a bit faster at it, but you just have to give a book the time that it needs to permeate you. And if you are someone like all of us modern people on some level who is used to having everything happen as fast as you need it to happen, that's a real sort of affront, you know, that that part of reality just, just has its own tempo. Um, and, it, and, you need, and what you're doing in that painting exercise or when you sort of stick with a book anyway, despite those antsy feelings, I think, is you're sort of strengthening your capacity to tolerate the discomfort of being in reality the way reality really is instead of just telling yourself that it ought to be you ought to be able to make it go as fast as you like um i won't go on but you know the i i live in brooklyn in new york and the uh, and as i write you know so many people honking their horns in traffic jams outside my window half the day Nobody seriously believes that makes the traffic go faster. That's just an expression of rage at the fact or of, of indignation at the fact that people want things to go at a certain speed. And it just feels like a terrible, terrible affront that you have to let them go at the speed that they, that they go. But I think it's a skill that's really worth cultivating. When you think about some of those particular tasks or the patience to, 
see something through. I, I think of the painting example of maybe the the rewards are in that last hour of mm-hmm. those three hours. How do you see some of that? Maybe some com- contemplative type of practices of maybe some of those rewards of, of being able to <clears throat> see it through and have, have the patience. I mean, yeah, this is, I think it is ultimately a meditative practice, right? Because it is a question of like that painting viewing exercise, you could call it a form of meditation because it's a, it's a question of being present with those feelings and not automatically responding to them and sort of widening that gap where there's a possibility of making a different choice. For me, what's so powerful about going through that process, I don't think it's necessarily like this for everybody, but for me, what's so amazing about it is precisely that you see that the discomfort is just kind of easily tolerable. It's just not a big deal. Um, there appears to be a part of my subconscious that thinks that it would be absolutely terrible to have to, you know, feel the discomfort of sitting still for half an hour or feel the discomfort of writing a chapter or an article where I don't know what I have to write next and I just need to hang out with the uncertainty. These aren't pleasant feelings, but something in me seems to think they're going to be sort of, they're going to kill me or something. And the, the great benefit of going through these kind of exercises, whether it's the three-hour painting viewing thing or um, just various forms of, of regular formal seated meditation, for me, one of the great benefits is like the structure of that experience causes you to have to ride out the discomfort. And then at the end, you're like, what, what was the big deal? Um, I always think about it when, I don't know if you have the experience of having dental work done under local anesthetic and, and the dentist is sort of yanking your head around and you're, and, and you, it feels like any moment there's about to be some sort of excruciating pain, but there never is because local mm-hmm. anesthetics are effective and they work. And it's that same feeling of like, I can't let myself try move into this difficult creative project or have this awkward, but important conversation with my spouse because any moment now it could be agonizing, but it basically isn't so it's great to learn that it isn't because then you're sort of empowered to do it again the next time (laughs) it reminds me of the the montaigne quote which is something along the lines of had many misfortunes uh most of which never happened something along those lines right yes i see that attributed to mark twain as well i have no idea who said it originally maybe it was montaigne but it's so it's just so it's so vivid and true right exactly absolutely (laughs) So th- this book is Time Management for Mortals, The 4,000 Weeks. How does meditating and coming to the realization of our mortality connect with time management for you? Well, I sort of confess that the title is a little bit of an attention getter, you know, um, and it's a risk because I see some people, it gets their attention and then their response is like, that's terrifying. I don't want to have anything to do with that book, <laughs> which is which may not be the most commercially uh, ingenious move on my part. But I think, you know, what the really important point is not the number, because after all, plenty of people get more and sadly, plenty of people get less and you can't predict how much you are going to get. So it's not really like you've got 4000 weeks. And since there are no newborn babies reading this book, kind of nobody is starting out with a full a full life ahead of them. But it does draw attention to the fact of limitation and finitude. And I think that is the really important point. It, it's the fact that it doesn't go on forever. It wouldn't, I don't think most of the points that I make in this book would be that different if we lived to 150. Um, maybe if we lived to like 10,000, that would be such a sort of ma- order of magnitude difference that it would change that. But, you know, we act as if we have all the time in the world, as Seneca said. We pursue various ways of managing our time that sort of imply obviously we're going to have room for everything that's really important eventually none of that is true because of the limitation to our life and therefore it sort of imposes on us this obligation to make tough choices but what i hope i'm getting at in the book again you know maybe some of the people who are so panicked by the title they never read it will will not get this but i i hope that what the book itself the insides of the book does is to also suggest that there's a kind of a a relief here and a reason to let your shoulders drop and exhale because if it's true that we are completely limited in 
in time and finite and mortal. And I just read a very interesting review of the book from a Christian perspective that sort of said, well, what if we aren't, which is a whole other layer of, of thought. But if we are, for all intents and purposes, the um, you can let go of the quest to try to do everything, right? It's not, it's not that you... It's not just that you have to sort of panic about how short life is. You can be like, oh, all these things that are premised on something impossible, this attempt to become perfectly capable, get around to everything, please everybody, never disappoint anybody. It's like, I always say, you know, nobody beats themselves up for not being able to jump a mile in the air, right? Because it's just not something we expect human beings to be able to do. And this should be something we don't expect human beings to be able to do as well. So to me, that's a huge relief. And then, you know, the next step is to say, great, now that I've given up somewhat this attempt to spend my life doing something impossible, to sort of get on top of time in this way that can't be done, now I've got energy and time and attention freed up to to focus on actually doing a few things that, that really matter. So I hope it's sort of liberating after the initial shock. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely seems like a, a paradox. Um, I think of Anthony DeMello in the book... Oh, awareness. He, like many other philosophical and spiritual traditions that success, um, you know, suggest meditating on our mortality, um, he writes in the book that you should imagine yourself lying in a coffin, see your body decomposing, the bones, then, then <laughs> dust. Uh, you know, he calls it a lovely, lovely meditation. He advises people to do it daily if they want to come alive. Um, but the response when he, when he tells people this, and you know, many decades ago, in in uh, you know retreats that he was doing, was uh, you know it's a bit morbid. It was not necessarily received, and he was always confused by that. Of you know what's so disgusting about reality? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the hardcore approach, and obviously, yeah. as you'll know, it's like a tradition in Buddhism as well. That sort of corpse corpse meditation. I'll be honest, my, the focus of my book is much more on the sort of finitude and limitation than it is on death and dying. Uh, and I, you know, I think I've got probably many more anxieties myself about death and dying than Anthony DeMello had by the time he was writing in that way. But it does all amount to the same thing. And there's another DeMello quote that I love, which is a definition of spiritual enlightenment, I think, as, uh, quote, absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Mm. Um, and I think that that sort of, I think that that feeds my viewpoint in this book as well. It's like, figure out the things that are totally non-negotiable about being a human being. Make sure you're right about that, because you don't want to think like, oh, it's totally non-negotiable that I could never write a novel, or it's totally non-negotiable that I could never leave my hometown, or something like that. Those things are negotiable, and we tend to accept sort of false limits about them. But figure out the, the limits that are real about time and the impossibility of doing everything and the impossibility of knowing how the future will unfold. And then just surrender to them as completely as you're able, because fighting things that are inevitable is sort of the definition of a waste of time. So I love that absolute cooperation with the inevitable. If you could do that perfectly, and I certainly can't, I think you would be basically completely happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I, a few weeks ago, I was watching one of these uh, uh, relationship type of reality shows, and the couple was constantly arguing, kind of on the verge of of divorce and things like that. And in in one of the episodes, one of them got into an accident that was uh, no injuries or anything like that, but it was a you know pretty serious accident, and it. Mm -hmm kind of gave this reminder that oh you know tomorrow's not necessarily promised and it seemed to really dissolve the relationship issues immediately who knows whether that will sustain but it does mm -hmm. seem powerful in many different aspects of, of life whether time relationships how do you how do you see it connecting with with other aspects i think that's so true and i mean obviously the big challenge is that we want some of this epiphany but nobody's ever going to choose to have the scare or the encounter with mortality that, that tends to lead to it. So I think, you know, hopefully one of the things that my book is doing is leading people a bit 
sort of in a slightly gentle way towards that kind of understanding about what really matters. Um, I think one of the shifts that happens in those moments is that there's a shift in the relationship between the the content of experience and the sort of fact of experience. We're getting into slightly Heidegger territory here too, I guess. Um, that we go through life being happy or sad about what we are experiencing and, you know, happy if it's people paying attention to us or a lovely meal and sad if it's waiting in a line or, uh, you know, being blocked in our in our ambitions or our goals. And Heidegger and other various other philosophers have always wanted to point out, well, like, it's more amazing that we are here at all experiencing anything than to worry so much about the details of what's filling that that experience and i mentioned in the book somebody i spoke to a while ago now who said that after a close friend and mentor of his had died shockingly young uh, he would find himself you know in traffic jams or stuck on hold to a customer support line thinking you know what would david have given to be able to experience this right and when you think about it in those terms Suddenly it's like, it doesn't matter quite so much that what I'm doing with my time on earth right now is sitting in a traffic jam. There's something kind of stunning and amazing about just like being able to be here and experience anything. And I can see how that would have the same effect in the context you're talking about. It doesn't always even take an an accident. You know, I think like just sometimes bickering with a partner, you can find yourself in a beautiful place or your kid can say something cute or you know and you can suddenly be like oh hang on like this is all pretty good (laughs) uh and compared to never having been born it's kind of a miracle uncertainty is definitely an interesting topic to to me it comes up quite a bit on the on the podcast um Mm -hmm. so it's not just the four thousand weeks that we're uncertain about but essentially quite a few things we we tend to not like reruns or predictable movies but mm-hmm. we we want our lives to unfold in a very predictable way how do we how do we get over that or or loosen the grip a bit i think it is about loosening the grip i think that's important i think all of what we're talking about here you know there's this people occasionally hear it and they want to say how can I become perfect at not being not being a perfectionist? You know, how can I be? And I think we all have to sort of accept that we're just stumbling, stumbling forwards in a, in a sort of fallible fashion. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about um, uncertainty is that you know it's just so clear that we lack the ability to know how the future will unfold or to dictate how the future will unfold it's sort of always the case that at any moment anything could happen so we live in this situation of kind of vulnerability to events um that is unavoidable but it's also kind of terrifying and so most of the time in an ordinary life you can make enough plans that come that turn out close enough to your plan that you get to sort of feel lull yourself into this feeling that actually you're sort of deciding uh what's going to happen and you do have some influence right you do have some influence but i think the the way to think about that influence i quote in the book joseph goldstein the meditation teacher saying that what we forget is that a plan is just a thought um in other words it's something that arises in the present moment and it's a statement of your intent in the present moment. Uh, and that's great. And that could be very useful because you can refer to it when you're deciding, you know, what action to take next. You can be like, well, here's how I'd like things to unfold according to my plan. So I'll do this. But if you think of a plan as a kind of a, a, a lasso, you know, that you're throwing into the future to bring it under your control so that, um, so that you can be certain about what's happening, that's a recipe for much more stress, you know, than if you didn't make a plan at all, because you're going to be constantly waiting to see if the future turns out the way you wanted it. A quote in the book, um, Jiddu Krishnamurti, the, the modern day 
spiritual teacher who uh, died, I think, only a few decades ago, um, who said that his the se- his secret to his happiness was that he didn't mind what happens, which is kind of like there are many different layers to this, and there might be objectionable interpretations of it, but this basic idea that you're sort of going into the next moment and the next moment and the next moment more in the spirit of curiosity, like, huh, I wonder what will happen next, rather than I really need X to happen and not Y. Uh, that is, that's a superpower, I think, to the extent <laughs> that you can pull it off. Yeah. It, it does seem realistic, maybe not to, to his level, but it, it does seem <laughs> like it's possible to move a bit closer to that. How do you, how do you think about it now after immersing yourself in in this topic writing writing the book in in your everyday life today? I think that's it. It is for me. There are some moments in my life that are like epiphanies where I see something very clearly and I remember where I was and I write about that a little bit in the book. But mainly this is a matter of letting a certain viewpoint uh sort of permeate you a bit more and certainly writing the book, certainly keeping a journal like I do, you know, these are very important parts of this. Um, it, it's, it just becomes, <clears throat> you, you slightly start to develop a sort of, a, I don't know what the right phrase is, I want to say muscle memory, which is, not, which is not right, but you know, something in the structure of your psychology begins to give way from the old, from an old way of doing it to a new way of doing it. And you're just, you know, five percent and then ten percent and then twenty percent more likely when the thought arises uh you know oh i've got to catch a plane and do this and do this next week i hope it all works out in as i need it to you're just a bit more likely to think like it's kind of going to be fine if it doesn't and there's no point in exerting a huge amount of emotional effort in trying to believe now that i do know how it's going to turn out and Every single other time in my life that I've worried that something might be absolutely catastrophic, it apparently hasn't killed me because uh, here I am. So, yeah, it's gradual. Um, and, you know, if you really want to, someone will really want to criticize what I'm saying here, they might say, well, isn't it just partly about getting a bit older and nothing to do with these changes in perspective? And there may be something to be said for that as well. There may be something that you get just from living another year and another year and another decade. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, maybe that's the greatest hope I could have for this book is that it would sort of speed up that process for some people of this feeling permeating them a little bit. So they're a little bit more sort of supple going forwards into a future they can't control. (laughs) When you often hear about uncertainty, something that comes up is maybe embracing uncertainty or, accepting uncertainty but if you look at some of the wise people of of the past it it seems like many people come to this approach of kind of upping the ante beyond that just truly welcoming or even loving uncertainty Mm -hmm. i think of uh jack gilbert the stubborn gladness uh nietzsche amor fati pema children who you quote in the book of abandoning hope as an affirmation yeah <clears throat> could you say a little more on that how do you see that yeah i mean i think all of this um accepting embracing starts with tolerating right so tolerating discomfort and uncertainty through to accepting and embracing and then sort of yeah affirming in that sort of way i mean these are all just stages of a kind of mental psychological gesture i think that's probably how i would describe it it's a sort of a a change that happens inside you where you turn towards something in a in a different spirit than you did before nothing might change in the outer circumstances of your life although it it might um and i can see how i mean i am never quite sure what was really going on inside nietzsche's own mind (laughs) uh, because lots of pretty wild things were going on in there i think amor fati this idea of loving uh what happens to you because it happens to you you know just being just um for me that's sort of like a a, a, 
a sort of north star to sort of navigate by. It's not necessarily something you can sort of instantly put into practice. For, for me, and this is why the Pema Children thing about abandoning hope speaks to me so powerfully, all of this is always a process of, it's more of a process of kind of dropping illusions and stepping out of fog than a process of like uh, ginning up a very positive feeling. It's always this idea of like, to the extent that I can see that it's pointless to try to control the future, that's the extent to which I can live with an embrace of uncertainty. So it almost maybe took the fact that I spent so many years trying to eliminate uncertainty from my life with time management techniques and things like that to sort of get to the end of those processes and um, exhaust the possibilities. And then this may be my particular psychology, but then I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, you know, no one can, no one can blame me for embracing the uncertainty now because I've tried every method to, um, to deal with it. And I've discovered that it can't be done. So, uh, yeah, somebody described this book as a, as a sort of a, a, a collapse of faith in a way uh, or something like that. Um, and in a certain kind of time management, certain kind of idea of productivity and efficiency. And that's, that's it. I, lo- I love these ideas of like falling back to the ground. It, that's sort of what does it for me rather than um, becoming sort of very, very, very sort of inflated and elevated with the idea of like embracing reality. It's just like take away all the alternatives and that's what there is. And there is something very peaceful about that idea for me. This, this idea of, say, to use uh, uh, Pema Chodron's words, that abandoning hope, many aspects of wisdom seem to be true when we hear it. It, it, it resonates with us. Um, but I wonder with this particular topic, if you were to ask maybe a hundred people, I'm not sure anyone would, you know, come <laughs> come to that recommendation of, you know, abandoning hope as an affirmation. Why do you think this is so <laughs> counterintuitive to us, if you agree or, or disagree? Yeah. Well, on the specifics there, it does matter what you mean by hope. And I think that um, yeah. what Pema Children is meaning is like hope that it'll, all the things that are a problem for us now will all be all right at some point in the future, that um, we don't really need to treat life now as as sort of quite really real because the the moment of truth is is coming later um i think there may be other meanings of hope that you wouldn't want to reject in that way but even that meaning it's you know it's a sort of bucket of iced water over the head right it's not um it's not an immediately comfortable thought i think a lot of people um will sort of deliberately push it away uh, because they don't want to feel the feelings that it that it evokes in them. Um, I don't know. I have to say, I'm at this strange stage in writing a book and hearing from people about it where you hear from many people who have really, it's really resonated with. And I guess by process of self-selection, you don't hear from the people <laughs> who it hasn't resonated with. But I was slightly expecting, and um, maybe it'll come, some kind of hostility at some point, right? Just because if you sort of make people have to think about uh, um, these uncomfortable things, you would expect somebody to be quite, some people to sort of protect themselves with disdain and contempt. So it hasn't happened. I don't know whether that's a testament to the fact that it hasn't reached them or that I'm a fantastic writer or that I'm the opposite of a fantastic writer and it hasn't even raised, made the issue salient in their, uh, in their minds. But you know, maybe we're a bit more ready for this message than we have been at other times in our culture's history. Um, because it is a bit bleak, but it's not depressing, ultimately. Ultimately, it's sort of bracing. You know what I mean? This is the it, the feel that it evokes for me is the one that as a British person you have when you go to the beach, right? Where it's like it's windy and rainy. That's what happens <laughs> at the beach in England. And uh, But it's kind of energizing to walk along a beach with the rain and the wind in your face. It's not... Um, it's you know you're right there in the way things really are and it's not it's not depressing at all and the book is as well it's 
it's written lovely and uh i also listened to it on uh on audio you did a great okay. job with the narration so it's it's great and um we're obviously just scratching the surface on uh on a few of the topics um got just a few kind of standard wrap-up questions that i'd sure. love to get your your thoughts on oliver yeah um one is is a bit of a difficult question, but this is uh, in search of wisdom. So try to ask people how you think about wisdom by definition or, or practice in everyday life. I mean, I guess what this brings up for me, it might not be sort of what you're, where you think you're focusing the question, but what it brings up for me is this complicated relationship between seeing things differently and then acting in a different way as a result of seeing them differently. And we all have the experience, I think, of profound moments of sort of grasping something important about life. And then, you know, you come home from the weekend in the woods or whatever, back to your normal life, and it's all it's all vanished. Um, and so, you know, this book definitely focuses more, my book definitely focuses more on, on the perspective shift than on the sort of tips and techniques, although there are plenty of those. But that is, to me, one of the important interfaces in, in wisdom. It's like, what have you understood about the world? And then how are you, what are the practices and the disciplines that you bring into your life, partly to take you through the days when you're not feeling the force of that epiphany, right? So, I mean... I think that's that's something I find so beneficial about. One of the very few sort of things I do in my daily routine that I pretty much always manage to do is is uh, morning pages, is writing three sides of a of a sort of narrow lined notebook. And I would say maybe a third of the mornings I I don't do it quite every morning, but I do it almost every morning. And maybe a third of those mornings, I totally am not feeling it. Um, mm. And it really is just a question of making your pen move over the lines and if you're lucky by the third page you might have something interesting but that's an example i think of like that that practice has been enormously beneficial to me in changing how i live the day because some days it's not like that and because there's a sort of accretion of the effect over weeks and months but for that you sort of need a practice that will keep you going for the days when all these kind of insights feel a million miles away for someone listening that was maybe interested in a small step or practice to, as you say, see things differently, is there anything that comes to mind? Oh, many things. It would depend on the specific context. This is not a book that tells you to meditate more than does for one paragraph tells you to meditate but then it shuts up about this topic because enough people have said that but there is a paragraph there about this this idea of uh, what shinzen young calls do nothing meditation where you're not even following your breath you're just trying to sort of sit and if you catch yourself doing anything thinking following your breath moving around just to gently stop doing that thing right so it's a practice in not doing things and it's surprisingly difficult and maybe you only want to do it for five minutes at first. But it also has a very extraordinary power, I think, in sort of bringing you back to reality, making you understand that the discomfort you feel about, you know, choosing not to act at a given point or choosing not to try and struggle for more control, that that discomfort is eminently tolerable. Um, it's also called non-directive meditation. I think it's just a useful... Uh, and, you know... It really looks like nothing because that's exactly what it is. But it's, uh, I think it can be very useful. In all your research in this topic and in writing the book, is there any maxims that, that come to mind that would be useful to plaster on billboards and bumper stickers and social media everywhere to blast to the world? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a quote from Charlotte Jocko Beck, the American Zen Buddhist teacher that I use as one of the epigraphs to the book epigram epigraph i get those words confused um which is uh what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured which mm. uh i really like it's kind of a rather austere tough love kind of um maxim but what i take from this is you know 
life is full of problems and sadness and anxiety and these things will happen to anybody but you don't need to make it a lot worse by by treating the sheer fact of having problems as a problem right you don't need to think you don't need to think um one day i'm going to get to the place where i'm so on top of everything that um nothing bad could ever happen that's just a huge extra source of stress and sort of it's sort of treating human existence as a problem to be solved which is incoherent on a number of levels but also just sort of a fruitless task because here you are you are finite you do live um for a few thousand weeks in the middle of the millions and billions of years of the cosmos and to sort of rail against that very situation just makes everything a lot more uh unpleasant to have to deal with so what i take in from that wonderful quote there's another one from another um american buddhist teacher mel weitzman which is something like um our our trouble is believing there's a way out and then pema chodron wrote a book called the wisdom of no escape and it's all the same idea it's like like you can't get out of the human condition and once you realize that you can't get out of it it's great because you no longer have to struggle to get out of it you can just make make what you can of this place that you are that you that you don't get to leave I love it. And that's a, a great way to, <laughs> to wrap it up, Oliver. Um, where can people go to, to connect and learn more about you? Well, obviously, the book is everywhere. You might expect to buy a book. Um, and, and those purchases are very appreciated. My website is oliverberkman.com. And I'm on Twitter, uh, too much for my sins, at <laughs> Oliver Berkman. All right, great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. Oliver Berkman, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for me as well. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.